Welcome to In The Room with me, Ronnie Barber. In this series, we'll be talking to politicians, YouTubers, sports stars and scientists about the defining moments of their lives. From the classroom to the boardroom, the briefing room, the dressing room and a whole lot more, we'll find out how the rooms of our lives shape the decisions we make. This week, I've got a very special guest in the room who happens to be one of my heroes. Doddy Weir is a former Scottish rugby union player who made 61 international appearances for his country. Since retiring, Doddy has been diagnosed with motor neuron disease and has taken the fight to MND just as he did in his playing career. We'll hear how horse riding played an unlikely part in his development as a rugby player. When you're on your horse, you love positioning the head. The horse kicks you up in the air a little bit. You got to try and get back in the saddle and I think that helped me quite a lot with the Line-up. How he found out about his MND because of a Google search. And maybe three months down the line, thought, oh, I'll just have a wee play to see what it was or is. And it came up with the dreaded, uh, you got MND, and it was all dashed. And how the launch of his charity almost went very wrong. And Gregor Townsend, the Scotland coach, came to me and said, what are you boys doing? He said, I would not possible because one of you will probably drop it. The first room I took Doddy into was the changing room at Newcastle Falcons where he signed his first professional contract. Well, I think when I look back at the question to the question, there's no, in no stage that I ever think that rugby will go professional. And I look back at my life as well and think I'm very lucky, very fortunate, just been at the right place at the right time through a lot of things. And Newcastle was certainly one of them because I played rugby for the most amazing rugby club at Melrose. Enjoyed my time there with some great boys as well. Uh, Jim Telford was coaching. I think that helped me play for Scotland a little bit. And with that, I really enjoyed that year as well. And so I maybe kicked all that off in 1990. Then all of a sudden, rugby went professional, which was uh, <clears throat> kind of bolt out the blue, one could say. And again, that happened about 95, 6-ish. And out of the blue, a person called Rob Andrew came on the board. <laughs> would like you to come down to Newcastle. Ah, right, yeah. You're not Rob Andrew. What are you doing phoning me? This is not true. And it was true. So um, <clears throat> when we met Gary Armstrong and I, we were invited to go down. And the rest was sort of history because we loved it. We loved what we said. We loved our teammates. It was such a nice area with great ambition with Sir John Hall behind the scenes. So all in all, we kind of signed there and uh, never really had looked back because we got the opportunity to uh, make a living on a sport we thoroughly enjoyed. Um, what was the transition like physically for you then? Because I, I, I remember my, my school teacher at Ockelake Academy, I'm from uh, Mauchland, in Ayrshire, uh, Doddy. Um, uh, and my, my uh, gym teacher, Gordon Strachan, was a Scottish internationalist. 
And um, he used to go away on a Wednesday to get ready for the International on the Saturday. There was never this long two weeks or whatever. The preparation was just literally turn up, learn the drills and, and play the game. But that transition from becoming an amateur and a top-class amateur to a top-class professional, was that a big leap for you, training-wise? Uh, not really. I, I see that with a... I didn't really enjoy training too much, but when you were in the national squad, you and Jim Telfer was coaching you, training was certainly quite intensive. But what they teach us was the the weights, either the the strength and conditioning. That I thought I was reasonably strong, so I'd be doing weights in the local gym at home. A nice lady might come in. I'll go from maybe 10 kilos to 25 kilos <laughs> to kind of show off a little bit. But down in Newcastle with the most amazing guy, Steve Black, and Gary and I thought we were relatively strong. But an example would be our first day of training. You'd be lucky if we're lifting eight kilo dumbbells because you did it in such a way that made it very difficult. And there's us thinking we could throw around 25, 30 kilos, but that was certainly not the case. So in some ways, we had a bit of fitness and a bit of um, strength to do, but otherwise, there was very little difference. But what was exciting is that Rob Andrew had amassed the most amazing rugby team at this time. And that was quite nice to play against somebody you play with, some of your peers, and that was really the introduction of Johnny Wilkinson as well. Mm -hmm. So we saw him in the in the team at 17 years of age, great gifted player he was. Uh, the likes of Alan Tate was playing with yeah. us, George Graham, uh, Nick Popperwell, the great Irishman, Garth Archer. The names just rolled up. Rob Andrew played a little bit. He got to Gamala, Tony Underwood. <laughs> what the that? whole team was truly amazing. And it was a joy to play. And with that, we went on to have a little bit of success as well. And if it hadn't been rugby, in fact, rugby was a bit lucky because you were going to be into the old equestrian game. You're going to ride horses. Uh, that was your, your gig. And, and it, by the way, it must have been really big horses because the size of your legs. It must. You must have had to get the bigger horses. Yeah, you may laugh, but that was an issue in the pony club. I I knocked the, the jumps down, not the horses, because <laughs> my legs were a bit longer than the the required with the horse place. But yeah. A lot of people don't believe, but I thoroughly enjoyed the horses. I think it helped me with my, uh, talk about this quite a bit now, helped me with my rugby, because it allowed me a bit core strength, a bit of stability. So the lineup, when you're on your horse, you're out of position in the air, the horse kicks you up in the air a little bit. You got to try and get back in the saddle. And I think that helped me quite a lot with the lineup. You got a bit of trust, you got understand the call so a lot of the way when you're against the clock in a show jumping arena you got to cheat a little bit try and work out what is the quickest way from A to B and you got to do that quite a bit in the rugby field as well so I thoroughly enjoyed it but I think the big reason was is that 
I was able to combine the horses and runway. So when I got my first cab for Scotland, I would be about 13, 13 and a half stone yes. in weight, which you would not be thought about that nowadays is a big thing for weight matters. And I don't necessarily agree with that. So you see a lot of young kids come into the game, oh, I'm not big enough. And I don't agree with that. I go back to what you're saying. If you've got the mental attitude, doesn't matter how tall or how strong you are, you'll make it in the way. And that was a big thing as well. Uh, what I, I believe in your ability. What I used to love about watching you, you and your era, I, you looked like you were having fun. I sometimes look at the game now, uh, Doddy, and, and I love the game, but I don't see a lot of the smiles and uh, uh, and the kind of banter. It seemed, and, and I know it's there's thousands of pounds at risk here, but do you think it's an enjoyable game at your level? It was the most amazing time, and I think we had the best time in the nineties. Although it was a sport, a very competitive sport, it was still very enjoyable. You go back to your Gordon Strack analogy with Scotland, we met up on a Wednesday as well. And it's quite funny, the transition. It was normally a Thursday in the beginning of the 90s, then Jim Telford went forwards to do a little bit of extra training. So he brought us up to Edinburgh on the Wednesday. And then after that, we go on the town and get quite sizzled. And the backs heard about this, so they wanted to come up Wednesday as well to join in the sizzledness. And we did that, and away slept it off Thursday, Friday, and played the most amazing rugby on Saturday because we all wanted it, we all bonded together. I keep saying that in the game of rugby, it's like a dinner party. You're all there drinking sparkling water. And nothing wrong with that, though, but you won't really hear what people have been up to. You won't really see the dancing on the table. And it's the same as the rugby. Bring a bit of enjoyment to it, which is generally through the alcohol side of things. And you have this major bond, this major togetherness, major fighting together. That was a big thing, certainly through my rugby career that I thoroughly enjoyed. And you could see that the way we played, the teamwork, the working together. And even now we're watching on with m and I get so many calls from old teammates about the old days because we've got that very special bond and friendship. Of course, as well, Doddy, uh, the biggest bond as well is, is with the British Lions, uh, which is a bit of a, a kind of mixed uh, experience for you. But getting the call up, because uh, uh, in the book, you talk about the rumours were flying around and, and people, as they always do now, they're putting out who they think's going to make it. And you kind of heard the rumblings. But to get the call for the Lions must have been just amazing as well. Well, I think, again, it goes to the headset. you got to try and set yourself some goals. 93, I thought I might have a wee chance to get on it and didn't. And went, oh, dash. So we tried and trained a bit harder because Lions is like the Olympics in, in athletics, the pinnacle. It's great to get there, but I must admit, the question was a while ago, would you prefer to play for the Lions or your country? And to me, 
all day long it would be Scotland that I would prefer to pull the the jersey on. But yeah, when the, when you're talked about, it's only when you got the official letter to the post you know that you're heading to South Africa, and that was quite a major point in my rugby, albeit just my luck, I got injured and had to come back a little bit early, but that helped me uh, plan my wedding to my lovely lady Cathy, yeah. so we got married on the return. Take you out the changing room. I'm wondering, wandering into uh, either your office or your bedroom where you kept your computer in 2016, December 2016, and um, you'd been getting wee symptoms. You'd been getting wee things uh, happening, a bit of uh, twitching, uh, maybe a bit of weakness in an arm, and you actually decide, like most men do, Doddy, we'll just check out. We won't go and see our professional. We'll just check it out on the computer. Tell me about that moment then, and tell us about the the symptoms up to your. Uh, your motor neuron disease. Tell me about that. Yeah, it was quite a bizarre moment, but the symptoms leading up to that, uh, my left hand lost a little bit of weakness. So when I would try to pass a rugby ball and catch it or do things like that, it didn't have the strength. Couldn't really throw stones or anything or a ball. And I thought, all right, what I'm doing? Well, I remember catching my hand in a door on the farm, thinking, ouch, that can hurt. Thought I might have broken a little bone in it, but it never seemed to heal. And uh, got a bit of twitching over the skin. And maybe three months down the line, thought, oh, I'll just have a wee play to see what it was or is. And it came up with a dreaded, uh, you got m and and it was... Oh, dash. This is, but I didn't really know, although I knew about it due to, again, the rugby with youth fan devices and the great um, mm -hmm. number nine for South Africa. And you and McDonald, I met them prior at Murrayfield on occasion, and we did the odd do for youth when he was here. So I knew of that, but didn't know what it was all about. So, yeah. When I googled it, it was a bit of a worry and a bit of a kind of very difficult learning. But again, attitude-wise, we got the MND. We we have to just deal with it. So there's not a lot we can do with it. There's no reason for me getting it. So there's no guilty feeling in the way. Just you get lung cancer and you do sixty cigarettes a day then there's a kind of feeling, well, you, you've you not helped yourself in that situation. But with MND, there's no rhyme or reason why people get it yet, but there's no research into why, where and when. So with that, you don't feel any guilt. You've just got the attitude to go, right, let's go and double check. Let's hope we've not got it. And if we have, we'll just deal with it. And that's been an attitude really I've had through my life, <coughs> probably helped with the rugby, mind you, and the business too. <coughs> if there's a problem, 
There needs to be a solution somewhere as well. So that's where we're working a great day. No, and the other thing is, well, uh, there was two things that came out. Uh, the nurse that wanted to do your lumbar puncture, and that was going to be her first one, and you asked for somebody else to come and do it. But also, and it, it came out of the book at me really big, uh, uh, Dottie, was the fact that the doctor said, well, and it's kind of matter-of-factness to you. Well, uh, in a year's time, you probably won't be walking. And... It's, it's a great person that can just take that on and go, right, okay, well, that's the case. I'm going to get stuck in. It must have been a, a real time of trauma. And I know you took a while to tell the, the boys and the family and to come out about it as well. But that must have been a really tough time with that going on in your head about you, uh, how your condition was going to deteriorate. Yeah, it was because I think with Kathy and I, the good lady, didn't know all the facts. But I do believe the rugby and the just life experience taught me something else. Because I was always through my rugby. And maybe looking at the next game, to, to think, oh, if I'm in there, probably expecting bad news. So I'll probably drop for the next game. If I am, then I've got it in my mind that I will be. If I've been selected for the next game, then all good well. And yeah, let's go on. So when we went through the test, I must admit, I was, the lumbar puncture was a bad one. As your good lady will probably know, it was quite painful. And so with the rugby, I think my spinal area was a bit harder and bigger than normal people. So I had to get about 10 times the local anaesthetic I wasn't really willing to share the experience with some lovely person for the first time. <laughs> so, but that went well again. That was one of the tests. But when we got officially told, I knew in my head that I had MND. So when the professor mentioned to me, who's been very supportive, um, I kind of knew that I said, right, let's go on with it. My good lady had the opposite attitude thinking all the way along. I hope this is not going to be the news that I want. So when we got told, she, bless her, was a bit upset. Mm -hmm. And I said, right, okay, what's the story? And that was the biggest thing, I have to admit. It's not known, going into unknowing. So not knowing much about it thinking there's might be a few things that will be able to help me. Uh, I'm very disappointed and frustrated to say there wasn't. There was no sort of pill help, no uh, real list of preventions or stoppage or slowdown. And that's where it's given me the go to try and change that. Because when you get the news of you won't be walking possibly in the year. It worries you a bit because a big time and also to realize that this is a terminal issue. You might have a year or two years to live. I've got three young boys still a bit to do. That was the biggest concern. And my mum at the time was uh, suffering Aye. quite a serious cancer. So again, it was trying to, it was maybe when we found out about four years ago, it was supposed to be her last Christmas. So we thought we'll keep this news quiet and tell people. But I have to admit, the, big, the biggest thing is telling your friends 
uh, that you got quite a serious medical issue. That was probably my biggest emotional part uh, in the car. Quite often, I had to put the phone down and phone them back again. So that was not the easy bit. But with the rugby, you see the enjoyment, the the honesty was quite amazing because I mentioned a uh, couple of good friends. One guy, Armstrong, who was just brought the situation down to the level, level that I enjoy. The guys have got this very serious medical condition, MND. Oh my God. I hope you get your driveway, the potholes in your driveway. Uh, <laughs> Uh, thanks. I go, what the fuck? I just told you I'm a bit pickle here. Um, why did you say that? He says, I don't want to call from your wife when you get your letter wheelchair stuck. And that humour is just what it's all about. And I have to admit, I find it quite difficult when people are quite nice to me at the moment. I prefer yeah. that kind of humour, the rugby humour, you could yeah. say that. I think the world maybe misses. It's certainly captured the imagination of your charity, uh, Doddy, and the work, work you do. And and what what has come out? And I think it was Jim Telford was talking about the fact that he, you know, you were derided as a kind of, uh, as Bill McLaren said, the wild giraffe, the angry giraffe. But he always saw you as a skillful player. But you always, you seem to set targets. And the, the minute you got this, you realised there wasn't a drug that really, you know, could help with MND. You decide, okay, that's I'm going to try and sort that out, and it's an interesting point for a lot of people just to go, okay, I can do this, I can set it, but it's the kind of person you are, isn't it? Well, I think so, but I think the person you are, the experience you are, the people who have touched your lives and through your 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 own life. You talk about Jim Taylor; he's been truly amazing. But yeah, I, I spoke about this the other day. And I see you got two ears. I got given the ticket of M and D. Why, when, when? I don't know, but I have. You got two forms of direction: one to embrace it and fight it, and the other to not. And all through my kind of life, it was all this sort of fight. Loved a bit of a fight. Loved a bit of a scrap. Albeit it would be on the rugby pitch. So now. It's, it's still against England rugby team. It's against MND. So every day, bizarrely, is a bit of a fight. So getting out of your bed, in the shower, up and down, walk around the house, up and down the stairs, uh, taking a drink, getting your shoes on, is all a fight that I enjoy because I can still do it. And MND is not stopping me do that, albeit stopping me doing certain things, um, like running in the 100 metres. <laughs> I didn't enjoy it. But maybe going to that. Uh, so my good lady has to help me in the shower, and I'll be shaving things, and maybe dress me, and maybe put food into my mouth. Otherwise, I feel very lucky four years in that I'm still able to do quite a lot of things, even getting all, it might not sound big to the normal person, but to when people with M&D to get up, get hold of the TV remote and change the TV control over, that to me is pretty huge. 
and uh, hopefully long time I continue. But yeah, for training day, after we got told about MED four years ago, I can ask the professor, what help can you give? And there's a lot of help behind the scenes, like speech therapists, occupational therapists, dietitians, and you get assigned a nurse. But that wasn't really the help I'm after. The help was, how do we stop this? How do we send the care package? What can we do to prolong the, the act of MD? Because it's a brutal disease. And as you and your family know, with Stephen Hawkins, just absolutely horrific what it does to the body. Eventually, the, the patient's locked in, but it's quite a devastating impact on the whole family, not just the patient. And um, <laughs> I had, through the foundation, we got an email the other day, and this touched me quite a bit, that this family, husband and wife, husband has had M&D for nearly 10 years, which is quite amazing. But he needs help with breathing, feeding, can't do anything himself. And his poor lady has to be by side 24-7. And, and with that, she is even unable to take the washing out because uh, her husband's got no alarm calls in case he needs to swallow or eat or breathe or oxygen fails. And that is quite horrific that it's impacting their life in such a way. And that's what drives me in a way, and I'm very lucky to try and make a difference. And let's see, we might not be able to get a cure quite yet, but a stoppage would be a great result. When you see what they've done with COVID, it gives a bit of hope. And that is the only drug that M&D patients have is this hope at the moment and we need to continue that. I'm going to take you into, and this is a bit self-indulgent. This is my uh, my viewing room. You and I are sitting in a really posh house somewhere, and um, it's a viewing room, and I'm looking at some great pictures of you, all right? And then you can pick the pictures, but I've picked one, and talking about your, your foundation. Uh, November 2017, uh, Murrayfield, you came out, 67,000 people stood as one, you and the boys coming out. And I don't think it was a dry eye in the house, but it was such a, a poignant moment, but it was such a, a great moment of recognition within the rugby community, which you talked about. Uh, that's one of the big highlights for me, apart from your playing, but I just I just thought how brilliant a game rugby is. It just says, right, it's a game of rugby. This is more important. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's quite funny how we think alike, because at home and my... So a room compared to the room in the house, I do have that picture of me and the boys. And it was just quite an emotional day, uh, lovely day, the whole of the rugby. But just before that, 
which made it quite poignant that we went with the kids to New Zealand to um, tour with the Lions. Because again, when you get told uh, you got MD, you just don't know how long you got to live for. And there was one thing I kind of promised the kids that I would take them on the Lions tour. And the thought was to go to South Africa, which would have been five years further down the line. I didn't really think I would get that because you just don't know what's around the corner. And with, so we went there with the most amazing time. And I would recommend people to go and support the lines. So when we came back in about July, the Scottish Rugby Union said, would they, would, would I, like to carry the match baller. And that was really the launch of the foundation, the awareness and what a platform it was. It was a great day for the kids, for myself, great experience. It was quite funny as well. I always think a bit beyond what the normal, maybe think I like to be quite organized. So when I had, I had a couple of thoughts, right? How are we going to do this? Should we all walk out to the centre line? Should we pass the ball to each other, kick it to each other? What should we do? And Gregor Townsend, the Scotland coach, came to me and said, what are you boys doing? He said, I would not pass the ball because one of you will probably drop it and you'll never live it down. I thought, Gregor, great advice. So that's why I carried the ball out. And in doing that, it gets quite emotional when I talk about it because, again, I had a wee thought in the back of my mind, right, I'm going to take all the boys to the centre line. I said, no, in future life, uh, I'm probably going to leave the kids. So with that, I'll go to the 22. I'll leave them there. I'll walk on to the centre. And again, it was a lovely occasion that, I love him, but I don't know. But John Bartley, captain, came over, wished me the best. Kieran Reid, the New, New Zealand captain, came over. And uh, both and Bartley, the young standoff for New Zealand, came over. And I thought, oh, that's quite nice. A young boy coming over to wish me all the best. And he give me the ball, mate. I want to start the game. I went, okay. <laughs> So you go from quite emotionally and then, right guy, back to, down to the ground again. And with that, picked the kids up on the way back and went in. And Scotland produced a great performance. But yeah, this how you were truly amazing on that, on that day and started up the awareness. And it's just been unbelievable where we've gone. What, what game... Doddy, where are we watching? What do you want to watch yourself playing in? Uh, what game do you think that this is really me? This was me at the top end of things, and I was I was a, I was the champion of the world. Well, probably one of the games that I was playing for the Agrix, Edinburgh Agrix against Auckland. No, serious, no. I never liked to watch me play uh, in the game. I've had some great experiences playing all through the 90s, invitational games, going to Hong Kong with a quality street gang, <laughs> uh, with Scotland, with the Lions, uh, World Cups. I've just been so lucky. And to pick one game 
It's very tricky. Probably my first game will be the one I don't remember most, but remember most for the occasion because uh, it just went so quick. The memories, the adrenaline was pumping. First I met Princess Anne um, and the whole occasion. The 10th of November, 1990, where it all so started, that was quite an amazing day that look back quite fondly. But as you mentioned at the start of the programme, uh, every game's been a joy. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And when you get your first cap, and nowadays you basically, in a nice way, drink till you're sick. <laughs> and uh, now it's not quite like that. I think a couple of years ago, the boys, three or four boys, got the first cap. And they were allowed to go back to the hotel to watch certainly come dancing or something. So times have changed without a shadow of a doubt. And I don't think I would enjoy the game because I feel it's over analyzed. Yeah. You're told how often you sleep, what you eat, how far you run, your weights and 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 one thing and that. Well that's it was great because the GPS systems on the shots yeah. now, so you get analyze how fast you would have done all right, you. though. You would have done all right with the GPS, you would you could you come well, with I, would a... have I would have put my GPS system on Gary Armstrong's shot, <laughs> and then it would be an ideal that way. <laughs> That's would have found a way around about it. Oh, and uh, the old days, it was fantastic just go out and play. Uh. Well, the best structure, but I just thought it was good fun on and off the field. You played with some great players. Who, who, finally, uh, Dodie, who was the, the player you really didn't relish playing against, certainly in the line-out? Because you were a line-out specialist. That was before you were allowed to be picked up, by the way. You could jump. Um, but who was a, was there a player you really kind of didn't relish uh, meeting? Well, no, I didn't. You always wanted to try it. Uh, better your opposition, but one certain individual got the better of me more than I got the better of him. And it was John Eels from Australia. He was just an amazing boy. His athleticism, his, just his skill level were quite impressive. He was the only one that I think I let myself down against and every time I played him, I probably got dropped because I was dreadful. He was very good. But otherwise, no, it was great to put your legs against Martin Johnson, Wade Dooley, Paul Ackford, um, Jeremy Davidson, and a lot of the, the greats of the game. It was a good time, uh, no doubt about it. And when you talk about rooms, it's certainly educated me in a way to where I am at the moment, with the rugby in old days. Uh, be nice costs nothing. Uh, be respectful. You see a change in the pattern. I think of people who expect to be at the top without earning the armbands. So I think in Newcastle, at the end, we'll go back to there. Uh, there was like... And the apprenticeship you had to earn. So with that, even with Johnny Wilkinson, he would come in the door, sneak on the left, 
and that would be my area of changing. Oh, you, Johnny, what are you doing? Move on. She moved next door to me, and it was Marius Hunter and Gary. Eventually, poor Johnny would have to um, go around the hall of changing room and change on the floor for the first week. And then somebody would say, right, come on, young one. And that was the apprenticeship, and everyone really did that. And the same in Scotland, in a way that I would be sharing, say, with little scrum halves like Gary or Brian Redpath. If you got more caps than me, you would get the choice of the bed and you'd be the understudy to go make the tea. So you got these five foot nothings that could get the double bed and now would be six foot six on the single bed in the corner. <laughs> but you respected that. And you got all that hoping one day that you might get more games than them. So you can tell them what comes after S and the alphabet and they go, T. Oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> uh, two sugars of milk, please. And uh, But on the Newcastle, you got the new age players who come in. On, and I would say the same. What are you doing changing there? Oh, this is my purpose. So no, it's not. Where's your name on it? They confront you a little bit and not show the respect that was deserved. And that, to me, tainted a little bit with the boys that came through the academy. They were built up to be this positive future. And at the same time, they got to remember where, where they are and how they got there and earn the stripes for and So there was a couple of scuffles in the change room in the later stages with some of the younger boys just to put them back in the cage. I can imagine you did that a few times, Dory. Um, listen, absolute pleasure, Dory. Uh, you're, you've been one of my heroes for a long while. Uh, you've been a hero for a lot of Scottish people, not just on the pitch, but off the pitch. But uh, we can still, you know, with the, with the headband and everything, you were, you were a real iconic right. figure. And and actually, uh, I think a, a big iconic figure for um, just the way, uh, the kind of Scottishness in you and how you tackle things. And uh, your wife, Cathy, and, uh, and the boys uh, are a credit to you as well. So thank you for your time. I'm going to mention your foundation and I'll put the link up to the foundation on the podcast as well, Doddy. Um, I'm actually waiting for, uh, I've ordered something again from the, the charity. I'm waiting for a snood to come. I've got a Doddy snood. Uh, oh, you look well, yeah. No, just uh, to thank everyone for what they've done to support. You've been amazing. And it's allowed the charity, my name is Doddy, to find quite a lot in research, because that's my main aim. And with that, I think we spent nearly uh, £6 million pounds in three years into research and a million pounds into uh, helping people with MND. Because we're quite lucky, and as you usually they'll know, a lot of people are not as fortunate. And once you get him in there, kind of crushes the family, can't go to work, can't get money. And, and with that, we're, we're helping quite a few families in the UK. But we need to continue this uh, crusade to try and get a cure.
a massive thank you to Doddy Weir. Next week, I'll be speaking to Professor Dame Elizabeth Anionwu, the nursing pioneer whose work on sickle cell disease has helped thousands upon thousands of people lead better lives. If COVID-19 hasn't been a wretched wake-up call for the National Health Service to really properly value all its NHS staff, I, you know, that's what we're wanting, is respect. See you next time in the room.